taking us through the word this morning. Um, as typical, um, we're going to continue our morning through prayer, um, praying for another church in our community, for an unreached people group, um, and then we'll continue praying for our new pastor candidate, and then pray for this morning. So if you would, join me in prayer. <clears throat> Father, um, we come to you this morning thankful that you are constant, that you have not changed since we met together last week, and that we can come together and enjoy you again this morning. Lord, we want to lift up um, Highland Terrace Church here in town. Um, we talked a few weeks ago about how their pastor, Chet Haney, is, his cancer had returned. Um, and I heard this week that he's back in the hospital yet again um, with COVID. And the doctors are trying to figure out how to get him the necessary um, chemo treatment that he needs while he is also in COVID isolation. God, we, we want to lift him up this morning. We ask for healing, if that is your will. And we ask for wisdom to the doctors and comfort to his family in the midst of all of this. Lord, too, um, not knowing him personally, but having heard of him and his effect on this community, Lord, we ask that you would just continue to give him good spirits so that he may speak to the doctors and that he may encourage everybody that hears his story and point them to you. Lord, too, we, we want to lift up um, Highland Terrace Baptist Church as they are seeking to find a short-term solution to fill the preaching spots on Sunday mornings, um, but give them wisdom and discernment in that. And we also ask for wisdom and discernment as they look for a long-term solution um, in the midst of this as well. God, we ask that you would just bless that church um, through this hard time and give them peace and assurance that you are at work in the midst of difficult situations. God, too, we also want to lift up an unreached people group. Um, this morning, we want to lift up the Azerbaijani people in Armenia. Um, 10 million people, over 10 million people worldwide, but we want to lift up in particular the small subset of 15,000 in Armenia that are 100% Muslim with no known believers. And even worldwide in the 10 million, all the different subsets are unreached. God, we ask that you would be with these people. We know that you have called people from among this people group to be yours, and we know that you are actively at work among them. God, we ask that they would have access to your word, that they would have access to believers that would share with them, and that you would just draw them to you. Lord, we also ask that you would raise up people to go and work among this unreached people group, whether that's from people in the area, um, the few believers that are among other subsets of the Azerbaijani people, um, or if it's people even from this body or from this city or this um, country, Lord, that you would send workers into the field. And God, we know that you will be faithful to draw these people to you, and we thank you for that. Lord, too, we want to continue praying for our um, new pastor candidate 
and just continuing to pray for transition. Lord, prepare our church to um, move into something new. Um, just may we be open and willing to change for the good and just enjoy the work that you are doing in the midst of that. Lord, to be at work in the church where um, he and his family are currently at, just we ask for good shepherding from him and within the church body as they um, will be transitioning out of that role. God, we ask that you would just be faithful to that church um, and to all the believers in that church um, as they look for wisdom on how to move forward in that. Lord, too, we ask for his family that you would just be with his family and preparing them for the change of moving, um, the change of finding new schools and new friend groups, um, and just all the change that comes with that. Lord, may you reveal yourself to be a true constant in the midst of all this change for them. And finally, Lord, we want to just lift up this morning. God, ask that your word would be spoken through me in a way that equips this body with your truth, that you would protect our affection from worldly influence. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to continue our time through the the book of 1 John. So far in this book, we've seen John introduce some really heavy theological truths. He's talked about the holiness and the eternity of God. He's talked about fellowship with him through the forgiveness and cleansing that Jesus provides because of his completed work as our propitiation and his continuing work as our advocate at the Father's side. Last week, we talked about assurance and sanctification. And so far, we've seen John counter false teaching of these deceivers who left and split the church. And we've also seen some of his initial exhortations to the local body he's writing to, exhorting them to know God experientially, not just intellectually, to abide in him and to walk in the light all of which is empowered by Christ's work. And all of this has taken place in just 21 short verses. So, this morning, we're going to continue working our way through a very dense book. We're going to be looking at some additional truths that John writes, as well as his exhortation to the congregation to not love the world. It seems almost odd that he would write to them here, about not loving the world after just having written to them about how they know that they know about their assurance. But remember, John is also writing to a church or this group of churches where these false teachers or these deceivers or these antichrists, as he calls them, caused a huge mess that eventually led to the split of the church and these people walking away into darkness. We don't know for sure what they believed or what they were teaching, but chapter 1 gives us at least a picture that they believed themselves to be completely without sin. We also know that common false teachings in that context included teaching of a separation between, like a complete separation between the spiritual and the material. And this is likely part of what led to their false view of sin. See, false teachings don't just pop up out of nowhere, usually. Likely, false teachings are more of a reaction to something 
and they usually start out with good intentions. Like when a new parent who felt that when they were a child, their parents didn't set them up for success to eat well. And so when they become a parent themselves, they become overly legalistic in forcing their kids to eat their broccoli. It may have, they may, meant, may have meant well, and they were addressing a real issue, but they turned their good idea into doctrine. And they built a false new worldview around it, which then created another issue. It's likely that the separation between material and spiritual started as an attempt to protect the church from the sinful influences of the world. But they took it too far, and they fell right back into these sinful influences of the world, trusting in their own good idea over the truth of God. This is where we find ourselves this morning, as John is likely now, after having addressed the failed attempt by these false teachers, he is coming back to rightly address this root issue within the church, dealing with and warning them to not love the world. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be in 1 John again this morning in chapter 2, starting in verse 12. <clears throat> it says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the fathers. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Do not love the world. What does John mean? See, this word here that he uses for world is used all over John's writings and really all throughout the New Testament. And perhaps the most common of which we, everybody's very familiar with comes from John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world. So is John now saying that we are supposed to follow God and be like God with the exclusion of loving the world? What does he mean here? What is he saying? What does he mean by the world? We've got to start there. There's three different ways that this word is used. The first is this natural created world, God's creation, earth. It's where we exist. That now this, do not love this world, is likely the view that was held by these false teachers. That we must not love, we must not be involved in any of this material created world. So John's probably not saying that, because he just refuted that. And he's saying that creation is good. The second view is that the world is talking about the people who inhabit the world as described above, the people in this material world. 
This is what's meant in John 3.16. He says that God loved the world. So it's probably not what John is talking about here either. This would also contradict what he just said about loving your brother. The third, which is where we find ourselves today, the world is used negatively. Is used to designate everything that prevents man from loving and therefore obeying God. The activity that is opposed to God and alienated from him. Or as John says, darkness. This is the motives and attitudes of our minds and wills that dictate actions that are contrary to God. This world is under the dominion of the evil one and under the judgment of God. This is the sense of the world which John directs us not to love. John goes on to tell us that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. Matthew in his gospel tells us similarly that no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. See, both John and Matthew emphasize that it's not so much the things of the world, but the love of those things or the servitude to those things. Because that love or service takes the place of our love and service to God. The world is not some sort of passive entity, but it is something that is in constant rivalry for every allegiance of the person. So why can't God share with the world? Well, God is a jealous God, right? Deuteronomy 4, 23 and 24 says that, Take care lest you forget the covenant that the Lord your God, <clears throat> which he made with you. Don't forget that and make carved images, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. In Nahum chapter 1, verse 2, it says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful, and the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And John, just earlier in this letter, says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. See, this world that John writes about here it is competing against God for our allegiance, for our love. And to love the world would be to introduce darkness into that fellowship. And that cannot be because we cannot have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness. God is jealous and he wants our entire devotion, our love, and our affection. So what is it that is in this world that is competing for our love? Verse 16 in our passage says that for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. You could look at this as our desires, the things that are beautiful to the eyes, 
and a livelihood, something like material possessions that you make for a living, or something that you have gained during a lifetime of experience. Now, like the material world, these things are not inherently bad, but it is our response to and handling of these things that can make them worldly and reveal where our allegiances lie. So let's look at each of these, starting first with the desires of the flesh. Now, we often hear the word flesh in Christian circles and immediately assume that it's sinful. Like, ooh, flesh, that's, that's uh, it's gotta be bad. Got to be bad, flesh. I'm not gonna say that anymore. <laughs> but this word is also used to describe the incarnation. Jesus came and took on flesh. Okay, I said it again, but <laughs> flesh in itself is not bad. Our fleshiness, our humanity, was created by God with right and proper desires. God gave us desires to eat, to accomplish, to be intimate, to have purpose, to know and be known. And we know that God perfectly provides for these desires. He didn't create us lacking. He gave Adam, in the very beginning, a garden full of trees from which he could satisfy his desire to eat. He gave him a companion so that he wouldn't be alone, and he gave him a task to steward creation, and that together they ought to be fruitful and multiply. And God himself was present with Adam and Eve to fulfill that ultimate desire to know God and be known by him. The problem is that these desires become worldly when they are acted on out of sinful interests, out of human striving, when we try to satisfy these desires on our own, when these desires are acted upon, unaware of and devoid of God and his perfect intent for those desires. And that draws us away from God and makes fellowship with him impossible. Looking at the next thing, the desire of the eyes. Now we may quickly look at this, especially in our context, where there are so many sinful things for our eyes to look at. We have access to stuff on our phones, on computers, all over the place, unlike we've ever had before. We may think that the desire of the eyes is immediately talking about lustful things such as pornography or things like that. And we think about the verse where it talks about, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. But the eyes are also regularly described as how we see and behold the glory of God and his creation. So again, the eyes are not inherently bad. But the problem here is when we look through our eyes with a worldly characterization, when we are looking to see things for the sake of sinful pleasure. Now this takes on a much fuller picture than just the sin that our eyes lead us to on websites. This may also take on the picture of sin that our eyes may lead us to when we're looking at the menu, or perhaps something more subtle that is so common and so accepted in our culture that we have an entire industry built upon it. It is constantly preying on our tendency to covet. 
Advertising is constantly inundating us and playing on these desires to make us look at things and say, I see it, I want it, and I'll take it. See, these desires come not from the insight that God gives us, not through the lens of God's intent for our desires, but these desires are shaped by the world in its ignorance of and opposition to God. The last one that's mentioned here is the pride of life. The word life is often used in the context of livelihood or what you make for a living or sometimes just life. And the word pride here is the sense of prideful arrogance or boasting. This is what makes life or livelihood enter the realm of worldliness. When we become arrogant, you could also look at this as saying some sort of overconfidence that is stemming from our security of where we think we're at in our life. As though we are out there putting on some ostentatious display of our power, our success, our wealth, our wisdom, our maturity that comes with age, whatever that may be, we are trusting in our position, in our possession, to the point where we become self-reliant, self-sufficient, and have no need of dependence on God. And that leaves no room for affection towards God. See, God gives us these things richly to enjoy. But they are his gifts. And he leaves us responsible to be good stewards of them and to use his resources to build each other up. We dare not boast in them. So that brings up the question of, are these things that John writes about still applicable to us today? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Or is it something that was unique to John's context? Was it something that new that popped up in a little whirlwind that he wrote about that doesn't affect us today and didn't affect those before him? Well, yes, it is still applicable. And it has been since the very beginning. Turn with me, if you will, back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Reading verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, the serpent came up and asked Eve a simple question. Did God really say this? What was God's truth? And Eve first responded with God's truth. God said, I can eat of all these trees, just not this one. 
but then added some of her own interpretation. God also said, don't touch it. We don't have record of God saying that. The serpent then, he exploits her lack of dependency on God's truth alone and introduces lies into his next question and questions God's affection. He says, surely God is withholding these better things from you. In competition with God, the enemy is trying to convince that he is more worthy of our affections because he is not withholding and can offer something better than what God has. So what we see then is that she saw that the tree was good for food, that it would appear to satisfy her desire for hunger. She saw that it was beautiful and that it delighted the eyes because she wasn't looking through the lens that God had given her to see what that really represented. And then finally, she sees... Hold on. She sees that it was desirable to make one wise, that it could increase security in one's own status and stature. The same set of things. John is warning us that although we know that which is from the beginning, we know God, there is also one who has been actively working since the very beginning of human rebellion. And that enemy is competing for our allegiance. When we act on our desires apart from God's intent for them, when we see things for sinful pleasure without considering God, when we put our confidence in the flesh, in our position, in possession, then we are pledging our allegiance to the evil one. I remember when I was in college, um, I was a part of a pretty large campus ministry, and we would regularly meet on Thursdays as a large group for a time of teaching and worship. Um, and I remember, I think it was my freshman or sophomore year, a very stark illustration. Now, I thought about recreating it, but I think the props involved would be a bit of a distraction, and it's honestly a little bit cruel. Um, so we're not going to do that this morning. But one of the campus ministers during his lesson, he had a table sitting up beside him, like a rectangular table with a black tablecloth over it, and sitting in the middle of the table was a fishbowl. And while he was teaching, he just walked over, scooped up the fish, set it on the table. And went right back to teaching. And as he taught, on the table, there's a fish frantically flopping about, and he's just teaching. And over time, slowly and slowly, the fish was flopping less and less. Now, he wasn't teaching on 1 John, at least not that I remember, but isn't this similar to what happens to those who love the world? A fish needs water to survive. No matter how constrained it feels by its fish tank, it will only suffer and eventually die if it is freed from that tank. So too, a Christian needs God to survive. But if we view God as holding us back 
from the true pleasures and promises that the world offers, we find ourselves doubting his design is our best. When we seek to be free from his oppressive restrictions, we too find only death. The attractions of this world are deceptive. They say that the world can satisfy our desires in ways that God is keeping from us and that he is limiting what we can truly experience. That beauty and possession are to be exploited to sinfully satisfy our desires. But if we insist on independently living apart from God, the God who made us, if we insist on being free from his restrictions, we find ourselves unable to fulfill the purpose for which we were created, that of knowing God and enjoying him and glorifying him forever. Instead, we find ourselves prisoners to these worldly desires, slowly taken over and gradually destroyed, like a fish flopping around on the table, slowly getting slower and slower. This sort of freedom is freedom only to die. And John says this in our passage. He says, the world is passing away along with its desires. This path of loving the world leads to death. But there is good news here. The rest of that verse in 17 says, but whoever does the will of, the God, the, the will of God abides forever. See, God, in his love for the world, for the people who are enslaved to this world that John is talking about here, they're enslaved to the corruption of the world that prevents them from knowing and loving and obeying God. These people whose allegiances lie with the evil one, that God, in his love, sent his only son to save them, to save the world, so that they may have life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 2 Corinthians 5:15 says, and he died for all that those who might live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. John 10.10 tells us too that a thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I came, Jesus, so that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is saying, I have come so that you don't longer have to live for these worldly passions. So that you may have life and not just life that the world promises, but true, abundant life. So what do we do with this in our context? See, do not love the world is a solid command that is held true from the garden to John's context to our context, and it will continue to hold true until Jesus comes back. But at the same time, John's context is pretty different than our context. And the way we walk this out, what we do with this, may be different in some ways and similar in others. 
See, in John's context, he almost seems to be advocating for a separatist stance, where the church is completely independent from the world. And his context was very different. See, most people think that he's writing to a church or a group of churches in and around Ephesus. Now we see in Acts chapter 19 that there is a strong presence in this community of a history of magical practices and material idols. And that Ephesus was the home to this massive temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world.
from his word, from the pulpit, and from each other. Then John turns and addresses the fathers and the young men. Now this is likely addressing the younger believers and the more mature believers. And it's also addressing, most likely, um, all genders. More, He's addressing it by the heads of household, as was common in their context, the, the young men and the fathers. So he's talking to everybody, the younger believers and the more mature believers. But as Calvin points out in his commentary on this section, that sometimes when people address everybody, we tune out. Because we're like, oh, that's not for me. I don't need to hear that. So John's making a careful point to address each and every group. It's like, here's everybody, but for you, hear this. For you, hear this. And there's two different ways you can read this. The first is a reminder directed to these different groups. The second is a warning. To the fathers, he reminds them that you have known him from the beginning. Don't forget, he's saying, don't forget the value of your experience in Christ. Hold fast to your seasoned wisdom that you've gained through maturity in your walk with him. You see, seasoned believers can be anchors of the faith, keeping out the influence of the world. Then he addresses the young men. He says, you are strong, the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Remember, you have overcome the evil one. Celebrate the work that Christ has already accomplished. Your fervor, your zeal, is strong for God and his word. Use it to encourage and edify the body and revitalize that which has been lost over the years. At the same time, you can read these as a warning to the fathers. He says, you have known him who is from the beginning. Do not love the world. Do not let worldliness, such as the pride of life, cause you to overlook the younger believers and marginalize their apparent impulsiveness and recklessness because you distrust them and think you know better. To him, looking back at last week, perhaps he is writing something along the lines of a new commandment. Then he turns to the young men, says, You are strong, the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world. Don't let worldliness, such as the pride of life, lead you to think that you, in your own strength, are overcoming the evil one and ignore the wisdom of experienced believers. Or do not let this new passion and zeal for God and his word leave you susceptible to the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes that prey on youthful passions. Perhaps to the young men, he is writing an old command. <clears throat> you see, we need each other. Every one of us in the body, working together, each contributing our unique giftings to point our affection to God as we together are sanctified as his people. When the strength of experienced believers is set aside in place of youthful zeal, we become vulnerable 
to those who would redirect the historical and biblical roots of the church. At the same time, setting aside youthful zeal and all the virtues that, accom that accompany it, such as the intense desires to learn, to listen to God's voice, to hear it, and to follow him, even at great cost, to set that aside too would leave the church vulnerable. Together, we need to warn each other of the dangers of worldliness, to protect our churches from becoming enmeshed with the world, to protect our desires that they are working out as God intended them, to keep our eyes and the things we look and how we look being filtered through the light of God. And to humble ourselves, to depend on God and not our own experiences or possessions. Please pray with me. God, we ask that you would protect us from the threat of the world. That we would set aside, or that we would set our desires in the way that you intended them and in your right design. That we would train our eyes to view the world through your light. That we would humble ourselves to depend on you and you alone. May our affection be directed to you, and may we lovingly remind and redirect each other to you over and over again. Amen. At this time, we'll move into a uh, time of the supper. If you would, during the song,